So we're going to go through 1 Peter 4 today, and we're looking at the concept of suffering, right? Nice light topic. I mean, in a lot of ways, 1 Peter has been about suffering from the beginning because that's the context in which Peter is writing. He's writing to people who are in the midst of persecution and suffering and great difficulty. But as I was reflecting on this this week because I wanted to, uh, you know, we've touched on a lot of these topics. I was thinking back at some of my seasons in life where I experienced periods of growth, right? Tangible periods of growth. And if you would like to do that now, even in your own mind, just think about that. Some really clear seasons where you experienced a, a spiritual growth spurt, as it were. And some of the ones that came from my own life is hitting my own personal point of surrender to Jesus in college. Um, then just a couple months later, September 11th, 2001 happening and seeing the way that impacted not just our country, but our, our university and people who went there because, you know, we were in central Jersey and there were people who had family and friends in northern New Jersey and New York. Just a couple months after that, the death of my roommate from a brain aneurysm. Fast forwarding, when Gene and I left the mission field prematurely and we were kind of branded as quitters and, and that sort of thing, feeling like a failure. Deciding then it would seem like a good idea to plant a church. <laughs> and just the string of wounds that ministry causes and comes along with. But these were all also periods of great growth. But what's the other factor that we see as consistent in all of those things? You can say it out loud. It's suffering, pain. When I look back on the periods of my life when I experience the most spiritual growth, they are always, always, maybe 100% of the time, coupled with pain and suffering. Suffering, difficulty, hardship, crisis points. Now, suffering comes in many forms, right? Suffering can come in the form of moving across the country away from your family. That's a form of suffering. Suffering can come in the passing away of a loved one. That's suffering. Suffering can come in the form of a physical malady, which you just can't recover from. That's a form of suffering. There's various forms of suffering, but this kind of crisis point or difficulty shapes us. Many of you have probably heard the old adage from FDR, at least it's attributed to FDR, a smooth sea never made a skilled sailor. See, God has a purpose in your pain, and he has a purpose in your suffering. And I realize that some of you are here today, and you are either in the middle of a period of suffering, or you are coming out of a period of suffering, or unbeknownst to you, you are about to enter into a period of suffering. And so what is God's purpose in it? Even if God isn't the cause of it, what is God's purpose in it? God has a purpose in your suffering. And this is the purpose, okay? Suffering, trials, persecution, tribulation, crisis points, all of this is, you now hear me because if you tune out the rest of the sermon, here I am summarizing it in a sentence. <laughs> all of this is used to turn up the heat on your flesh. It's to burn off some of that dead stuff that remains. It's to prune the dead branches. 
so that you focus on what matters because nothing is wasted with God, including things that are downright terrible. 1 Peter 4, chapter 1. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Okay, let's stop right there. I'm going to go through the whole chapter, so we've got to pause every half of a verse. Right, suffering is part of life. Right, that's part of what I want you to see here. Now, l- listen to me. This flies in the face of the false prosperity gospel. And when I say that and you say, well, what does that mean? It means Joel Osteen. This flies in the face of the false prosperity gospel, which is so popular today. You see, because in recent decades, thanks to the church growth movement, some congregations have drifted from the cross, which is a cross of suffering, into a consumer mentality, which seeks to fill the pews or tables or chairs by making people happy. Peter or Paul calls this tickling people's ears. This comes in several different forms. I mean, it can come in a lot of different forms. But ultimately, it says Jesus died to give you what you want and therefore creates a false heretical culture of entitlement and divine manipulation where we pull the slot machine and we want God to give us what we so deserve because after all, we put the quarter in. In the false prosperity gospel, there is no mention of sin That leads to judgment. There's no mention of repentance. There's no concept of suffering. Actually, suffering is seen as punishment. You see, when we look at the prosperity preachers of our day, and this can be often what's classified as, if you like the televangelists, charismaniacs, you know, that kind of idea. There's churches that will say, any form of sickness is from the devil. You need to rebuke it. Any form of difficulty is not from God. You need to have enough faith and you can push it away. All of this is false prosperity. Suffering is seen as punishment because of a lack of faith. Sickness is seen as a foreign invader that needs to be rebuked away. If you are reading authors who talk about this kind of stuff, flee. Paul says, if anyone preaches a gospel that is different from the one I brought to you, he says, let him be accursed. Okay? Many, many, the vast majority of the pop Christian books you see on the shelves of bookstores are prosperity heretics. It's therapeutic deism. Pop this pill for Jesus and your problems go away. It is not the gospel. There are shreds of truth in every heresy under the sun, by the way. That's why it's so seductive. But the prosperity heresy misses a key point that Peter points out, and it's the first clause in this sentence. Christ suffered in the flesh. Even Jesus suffered in the flesh. Did he suffer because he lacked faith? No. Did he suffer because he sinned? No. Did he suffer because he was weak? No. He suffered because it was God's plan. He suffered for righteousness. Therefore, since even Jesus suffered, and suffering is part of your reality, since even Jesus suffered, this is what Peter says. He says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. And I love that he says arm, because when's the only time we use the word arm? Not speaking about my arm, right? When is the only other time we use it? 
in a battle. It's a military term. He says, arm yourself. This is your weapon in this fight against sin and death and the enemy who wants to destroy you. It is the weapon of your mind by faith. Arm yourself with this way of thinking. What way of thinking? That the reality is suffering has a purpose. That God is sovereign in your suffering. That this is a temporary home, which is why we are called exiles. That integrity is our calling in the midst of difficulty, and so on and so forth. All the themes we've been talking about from 1 Peter, and many more. These are our weapons while we wait for God's purpose in suffering to unfold fully. And so the question is, what is God's purpose in suffering? And he tells us, First Peter 4, he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh, in other words, while you're alive in your body, has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past, before you knew Jesus, in other words, that suffices for doing what the Gentiles, Gentiles he's using as a term for non-believers, as what the Gentiles want to do. Well, what do they want to do? Living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. And with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them, parenthesis, the way you used to, in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you because of it. But they will give account. To him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So what on earth is he saying? This is what he's saying. I'm going to paraphrase for you. There's a lot here. We could spend multiple weeks, but that's not my purpose today. The paraphrase is this have the same perspective towards suffering that Jesus did. Because this is why. Because suffering focuses you in such a way that you won't waste the remaining days on earth on human passions, but instead you will devote your life to pursuing the will of God. In other words, suffering focuses you like a laser so you stop chasing sin, and you start chasing the kingdom of God. That is the point of suffering. In other words, suffering in the flesh while you're alive causes you to focus so that you no longer live for what gratifies the flesh. Instead, you live for what satisfies the spirit. That is God's purpose. That is what God does through suffering. Because when you suffer, you think differently about every other area of your life. If you've suffered, you know this is true. And you want to know why I know this is true? The older you are, the more what you have. Suffering. And that's supposed to lead you to maturity. Unless you're an idiot. Okay? But kids often have not suffered nearly as much as adults. And so you know what? they tend to value things that aren't nearly as important, right? If you're 35 and you're still collecting Pokemon cards, you might have a problem. 
Because there's certain things that you stop doing as you mature. And suffering is one of the things that God uses to put all of our life in perspective. When you get cancer, it puts your life in perspective. When a loved one passes away, it puts life in perspective. Every time I officiate a funeral, it puts life in perspective for everyone who remains. And then what happens? We are quick to forget until the next person we know passes away, and then we're shocked back into reality for another year. And then we're quick to forget, and we're shocked back into reality. You know, getting in a car accident and losing the ability to use your legs puts your life in perspective. Not being allowed to go to school for six months puts things in perspective. Not being allowed to gather with the church or to go to work or to worship freely puts things in perspective. Suffering adds perspective to your life if you have ears to hear. This is God's use in it, even if he's not the source of it. The point is this. Suffering in the flesh makes you focus on the spiritual. Peter gives some examples of what happens when you suffer and therefore begin to grow. He says, one, you realize that temporary pleasure is temporary. And so you stop living for, I'm going to get drunk tonight, and you start saying, I'm going to actually live for something that matters. And then you know what happens? You start to no longer crave the things you used to crave. I remember that there wasn't, and I'm not sharing this because I'm trying to sound holier than thou. I'm just sharing about my testimony. I remember when all of the music I used to listen to, I lost my taste for it. And that I used to enjoy listening to things like Tool and Nine Inch Nails. And, and then all of a sudden, it was like, I just, I didn't care anymore. It didn't interest me. It didn't interest me. I remember in, col- in college when after, you know, listening to the entire collection of Led Zeppelin albums, I had officially gotten the lead out and I was done. Like, I remember I no longer had an interest in those things. Not because someone said, well, Christ- Christians shouldn't listen to that. No, my heart started to change. My appetite started to change. I no longer wanted to fill my mind with things that weren't going to bring me closer to Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that I'm perfect. Those of you who know me well know that I'm not, okay? I'm just giving an example of how God builds us, like the way he build, we build a muscle. He breaks it down, rebuilds it, breaks it down, rebuilds it. And then Peter says, as you start to change, as your palate begins to change, as you begin to focus on different things, guess what happens? You start to grow, grow in holiness, not holier than thouness, holiness, which is maturity. And people start to notice that you no longer enjoy the things you used to enjoy with them. And not, you might not even judge them. You may say, I'm not interested in that. The simple fact that you're not interested in it makes them feel condemned, even if you're not doing anything wrong to make them feel condemned. The fact that you say, no, thank you, makes them feel dirty. And then they malign you. That's what Peter says happens. They malign you. They mock you. Why don't you enjoy those things anymore? 
because they seem childish in the face of suffering and pain and reality, don't they? Everything has perspective once you suffer. You see, if I suffer in the flesh, it draws me closer to Jesus in the spirit. And once I've come face to face with that spiritual reality, everything else, even if it starts to fade over time, but in the, in the, in the clarity of that moment, everything else seems pathetic. When you really scratch the glory of Christ, when you really taste it for a moment, everything else seems insignificant especially the things that shouldn't even be named among us. Peter says, for the time that is past. In other words, your life before Jesus, that time that passed, that suffices for living for idols. But now, post-Jesus, the time is to live for him. When you suffer, it underscores the brevity of life. When you get robbed or your house burns down, as has happened to people in this congregation, when you get in a car accident and your car gets totaled, it underscores the futility of stuff. When someone gets hurt because you're being stupid, it points out the silliness of sin. That people are dying. And as Peter says here, we preach the gospel to dead men that they might live. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Now he wrote this 2,000 years ago and he believed it. How much more is it at hand now? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards or managers of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him be, belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So how do I live in light of my own brief suffering and then a glorious eternity? That means the end of all things is at hand. And Peter is going to go through this list here and point out this question, this reality. If the end of all things is at hand, then. Okay? And so every part of these uh, this list, uh, list of imperatives or commands is hinging on that. If the end of all things is at hand, then I need to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of my prayers. Why? Because if the end of all things is at hand, I cannot waste my energy being distracted by lesser things. I need to focus. He says, love one another earnestly. That means not because the church told you to, but because it's deeply embedded in your heart. As, as Christ has loved me, so now I love others. He says this, when you know that the end of all things is at hand, you don't sweat the small stuff of sin against you. And so you make sure accounts. You pursue love because it covers over a multitude of sin. You walk forward in forgiveness quickly. 
because you have perspective. You say, well, give me an example, Bill. If you know your child is dying tomorrow, you don't worry about the fact that their room is messy today. That's perspective caused by suffering. Show hospitality without grumbling. When you know that the end of all things is at hand, you don't complain about someone crashing on your couch or having to pay for their food because you have perspective. Instead of squandering your gifts, well, you serve, you speak, everybody's different, right? We're part of a body. We're different roles in a kingdom. Instead of squandering your gifts, when you know that the end of all things is at hand, you use them. You use them. I'm just going to rant for a second. Um, I'll tell you one of the worst parts of the last year. We were already spiritual consumers, and now we're just full-on spiritual consumers. The problem with streaming sermons is this. You serve no one. You're just served. You consume, you consume, you consume, you consume. You don't serve people. You don't love people. You don't encourage people. You don't hold people accountable. You don't use your gift to build up the body. Instead, you just consume. And it's a tool from the devil to ruin the church as the end of all things is at hand. Don't fall for it if you're listening to this recording. <laughs> to the six people who listen to this recording, I implore you. <laughs> I don't know where I was. Oh, here we go. Listen, um, instead of squandering your gifts, use them to build up the body. That's their purpose. When you know you don't have much time, you want to be as faithful as possible before Jesus comes back. If you knew the day of your death, if you knew the day of Christ's return, don't you, wouldn't you hope to think you would live differently? We're supposed to live with that kind of imminency, and suffering reminds us of that reality. Beloved, verse 12, do not be surprised. Some of you guys are tuning me out. I can see it. I'm just going to keep talking louder, by the way. Okay? Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Suffering in our life? Yes. That's what he's saying. Instead, verse 13, but rejoice. There's two imperatives. Do not be surprised, imperative number one. Rejoice, imperative number two, insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, if you go to prison for doing something wrong, that's not suffering. You're just reaping what you sowed. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, I'm going to pause there. If you have your Bibles with you, where it says Christian, put it in quotes. Did you know that every single time the New Testament uses Christian, it's used derogatory? So in other words, this is like him saying, yeah, if anyone suffers as a Christian, that's what they called them. It was an insult. It was an insult to be called a Christian. So they suffer as a Christian. If you suffer as a Christian, in other words, because you follow Jesus, let him not be ashamed. 
but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God, and it begins with us. What will, and if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Do not be surprised by suffering. Instead, rejoice. Why? Why should I rejoice at suffering when I, I do the right thing because I'm a follower of Jesus or because I, I share my faith and I'm aligned or I stop pursuing sin and I start pursuing righteousness? People think I'm ridiculous because I give away 15% of my income. What do I do when that is happening and why should I rejoice? And this is what he says. Rejoice because it leads to more glory, more Christ-likeness, and more maturity. If you are insulted for Jesus, rejoice. God is not only proud of you, but he is with you. And this is how throughout the New Testament, after being beaten, believers would rejoice. Because in that moment, there's something supernatural happening where the spirit of Christ is within you, giving you grace for the moment. You know, people say things like they hear a story about persecution and they say, I hope if that happens to me, I have the faith to stand firm. And in Christ, you will, not before, in the moment. Because God gives grace in the moment. He doesn't give it in preparatory. He gives it in the moment so that you have what you need in Christ at that exact moment. See, there's something glorious about suffering as a follower of Jesus. It's a different perspective, something glorious. But if you suffer for being a crook, there's no glory in that. There's only shame in that. The point is this. He says judgment begins in the household of God. What's he talking about? God is a refiner. He purifies. And this type of suffering, for righteousness' sake, is a type of judgment against our flesh, not against our spirit, because he is making us more like Christ in the refining process. Not to punish us, but to mold us. It is not punitive. It is formative. It's a formative type of judgment. The same way when your child does something wrong, you correct them so they grow into maturity. God will trim dead branches. He will burn off flesh that remains. He will shine the spotlight on your sins so that you can humble yourself and repent rather than be humiliated. Because sanctification is crucial to the salvation process. The point is this, God wants to make you like Jesus. That is his goal, and he's working it out. And it's a process. And suffering is one way that he accelerates that process. And because of that, suffering with the right perspective is good and glorious. What a contrast to churchianity's perspective on suffering. Huh? Can I get like an amen or a preach it? Or like a, like a woe boy or something? I don't care. He summarizes this whole chapter. All, actually, he summarizes all of 1 Peter in verse 19 here. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. 
If you want to look at First Peter in a verse, that's it. Okay? When you were a little kid, you probably had something you loved. Right? Everybody have something they loved that could have been like your Barbies or your baseball cards or, you know, your Nintendo. Did everybody have something they loved? All right? Now, you, you men in, the tw- in your 20s, I'm talking to you, all right? When you were a little kid, you had something you loved, something you collected. It was the most important thing in the world to you. And then it theoretically wasn't. Why? Because you grow up. You mature. Like I said, you realize that Pokemon isn't life. You realize that surfing isn't life. You realize that Mario isn't life. You realize that Xbox isn't life. You realize that your favorite cartoon show wasn't life. Because when you grow up and you suffer, it puts your life in perspective. That's the point. That's what's supposed to happen. The first time you make a bad financial decision and you lose $15,000, it puts your life in perspective. Pain is often the catalyst for change. Life gets real and we grow up. But not everybody does. Not everybody does. But we should. So what does this teach about God, this chapter? God is sovereign over your suffering. And he has a purpose in your suffering. And this is the purpose, to make you more like Jesus. What does it teach about you? Suffering focuses your spiritual eyes on what matters. And it reminds you of what is temporary so that you can fix your gaze on things that are eternal. And in this way, suffering burns away the dross so that what remains is purer. James 1, 2-4 summarizes this whole concept. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, mature, lacking nothing. And so what do you need to do? One, arm yourself with this way of thinking. Two, do not be surprised when you suffer. Three, rejoice when you suffer because you get to become more like Jesus. And four, in the meantime, do good while you wait for his return. Now, I don't know if you ever knew this, but I guess you technically can create suffering for yourself, but that's weird, okay? Most of our suffering we don't control. But there is one maybe arguably more than one, but one main spiritual tool that God has given you for some self-suffering. Do you know what it is, anybody? If you know what it is, yell it out. It's fasting. Fasting is the spiritual tool that God has given you so that you can essentially willingly enter into a time of suffering and therefore you can Meet Jesus more rapidly as you crave him 
That's why we fast, to know him more. I would challenge you, if Muslims can fast for 30 days during this month of Ramadan, surely his believers who actually know the truth can fast one meal a week to know him more and the power of his resurrection. There are believers who you know who are suffering and they need encouragement. Maybe you can share these verses with them. Share this passage or James 1, 2-4. Encourage them to fix their eyes on Jesus. Let's pray. And then we're going to go into a time of brief discussion while we get ready for our baptism.